You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hey, church family, good evening. How are you? All right. Um, my name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here. Man, it really is a gift to be with you tonight, open God's word, and just particularly as I've kind of been watching some of you come in and just, um, man, hanging at this four o'clock service. It's just good to see a lot of familiar faces. And I'm not gonna call everyone, but I'm just thinking of Warders and Austins and the Cuthberts and Paul and Tony and Daniel and Rachel and the Castles and Westlake and Miss Nancy. I'm just seeing so many familiar faces. And I just, I just want you to know how much we love you, you know, just how much I love you. I hope that's just a small representation of the Lord's great love for you. You have a father that just delights in you tonight. He loves you. Um, and we're in Romans chapter seven. Um, man, just a gift to continue this series. Romans seven, we're gonna be in verses seven through 14. Romans seven, seven through 14. As you're getting there, I'm just gonna pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. As always, your holy word under your Holy Spirit really is enough for your people. So I pray you just would change us tonight. Just pray you give us ears to hear. Uh, we pray this for Jesus' sake, amen. Well, about five years ago or so, I had the role of being a part of our gospel ministries team, gospel communities team at the time, we called it home groups. And we were looking for a few new home group leaders. And so I got in a couple of emails uh, that had told me that I needed to meet Joe and Christine Garcia. They were mature, they were um, older for our congregation's sake, they were in their 50s or so, they loved Jesus, they loved one another, they weren't perfect, but they were gonna make great uh, home group leaders. And so I was emailing back and forth with Christine, and Christine uh, encouraged me to meet them at what used to be the Preston Hollow Grill. It was in the northeast corner of the intersection of Midway and Northwest Highway. And so I get there, um, showed up early at that meeting, waiting for them, and a lady comes in that seems to fit the description about the same age and what I'd heard of Christine. And as the lady walks in, I look at her and I say, Christine? And she says, yes. And I say, I'm Jonathan. Um, she says, okay, my husband will be here in a little while. Let's go find a seat. And so they seat us at our table and, and we begin what becomes a very awkward five to seven minutes. Um, we weren't there seemed like for the same meeting. I am there with the intention of talking to Christine and Joe Garcia to get to know them, to talk about the possibility of them being leaders in the life of our church. And it feels like everything I'm lobbing across the table to get to know Christine is just falling on deaf ears, you know? Until about five to seven minutes or so in the conversation, I say something like, which will show you the depth to where we've gone. I say something like, hey, thank you so much for the email and the suggestion about this restaurant. This is great. And she quickly and candidly says, I didn't send you an email. I'm like, okay. You know, and we, we have this minute where we're kind of eyeballing each other as if to say, who are you and who do you think I am? And she says, I'm Christine. My husband is a business executive with so-and-so, can't remember it. And sometimes he lets his junior associates join the meals. And that's who I thought you were. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'll be a junior associate anytime, you know, with your husband, that sounds great. And, uh, and then I say, well, I'm Jonathan. I'm a pastor at a church in the area. I 
you know, I, I was trying to get together with you to see if you want to be a leader at our church. You know, do you? <laughs> you know, and it's this weird moment of who are you and what are you doing here and what is going on across this table? Now, when it's something like that, it's goofy. It's five to seven minutes of wasted time. I show up late for another meeting. It's a little awkward. That's one thing. But why in the world tell that story? To swing it the opposite way, here's why. Because when God is speaking through the apostle Paul here in Romans 7, he is provoked in a good way because he sees that the people here at Rome, they've pulled their seat up proverbially to the table across from the law of God. And they're looking the law in the eyes and they're calling it sin. And and they've pulled up their seat to the table, so to say, at the meal with sin. And they're looking at sin and they're coddling it and calling it grace. And even more than that, the ramifications of all those things is that they have pulled up their seat to the table looking at the character of God. And they're saying things about God that are not true of his very character. They've missed on who God is. It was A.W. Tozer that said it like this. He said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's a massive quote. Think about that for a second. What you think about when you think about, when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Not the degree, not this decision or this parenting method, though those are all important. He's saying the driving factor, should take this job, that job, this city, this thing, the driving factor of all of those things, what you think about when you think about God. Why is Paul concerned with this here? Because Paul knows that a a right view of the nature of the law is gonna lead to a right view of the nature of sin, which will lead to a right view of salvation and who our God is. So in other words, if you swing and miss when it comes to what the law is, then you're gonna swing and miss badly on what the true nature of sin is. And if you swing and miss there, you will swing and miss again on salvation and who our God is. So here's where we're going tonight. We're just gonna look at the true nature of the law in verse seven. We're gonna look at the true nature of sin, the deceptive nature of sin in 7b through 11 or so. Do you like that 7b, trying to help you out? And then we're gonna look at the problem within, verses 12 through 14. So look with me in verse seven, the true nature of the law. Paul says this, what then shall we say? That the law is sin. So we learned in Romans 6 that that we're no longer under the law, but under grace as believers in Christ. Shea preached last week that we're to be released from the constraints of the law like it's an old relationship. So Paul's hearers are thinking we're not under law, we're under grace. Um, We're released from the constraints of the law. This seems to me like, is the law as bad as sin? That's what they're asking, that that the law is sin, is the law as bad as sin? And Paul uses the most emphatic, no possible in the Greek language, by no means, he says, certainly not. Emphatic, no, heck no, that is not what we are trying to say here. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So do you hear what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying that the function of the law was not to heal sinfulness or brokenness. It was to reveal sinfulness or brokenness. We've already seen this in our series, right? Romans 3.20 should be up on the screen. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul is saying the function of the law 
was more mirror than like makeup or comb. It was, it was revealing something, not fixing something. If I look at the mirror and, I, and something needs to change, I don't punch the mirror. The mirror is just the diagnostic tool. So it's more mirror than makeup. It's more diagnosis than remedy. It's, it's not to heal our brokenness. The law just reveals the brokenness that's already there. It puts up the perfect standard of God, the perfection of God, and puts our reality against the backdrop and shows the disconnect there and shows the revelation of what's already going on in our hearts. That is the true nature of the law we've been talking about through this series. But then moving on to just the second point tonight, well, what is the true nature of sin? If the true nature of the law is to reveal brokenness, not just to heal it, if it's this mirror that's showing us what's going on, the true nature of sin is powerful and it's deceptive, it's cancerous. We're just gonna look at the deceptive nature of sin. Look with me at, at seven, second part of seven again. Here's what Paul says. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So in this part, I just wanna give you three, three ways that I think Paul's showing the deceptive nature of sin. Here's the first one. The first one is that sin slithers up to us and says, only focus on external actions. Sin slithers up to you and I and whispers this deceitful lie, only focus on external actions. What, what does the word coveting mean? The, the word coveting carries this meaning of desire, craving, and longing, but specifically it carries the idea of desire, craving, and longing for that which is forbidden, for that which we can't have. It, it's the, the golem's ring type of thing of my precious, like I need it, I want it, I, I don't have it. It's, it's this idea of us all saying in life, I want it my way. Like, don't box me in. The minute you tell me I can't be this, well, I wanna be it. The minute you tell me I can't have this, well, I wanna have it. It's this craving and longing for positions and paychecks and physiques and people and places that we don't have, but we desire to have that. It's what I want. And this was confusing me in study, but why does Paul single out this one? Like why the 10th commandment? Why not the other nine? Here's why. Because when Paul looked at the commandments, only the 10th commandment deals with the internal reality of the heart. So just imagine Paul like reading through the 10 commandments and saying something, you know, coming up to do not murder and saying, okay, check. I'm not murdering anybody. Do not commit adultery, check. I'm not doing that. Do not commit false oaths. Do not swear falsely. Okay, not doing that. Keep the Sabbath holy, done. I'm keeping the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother, I've got it. And then he gets to the 10th commandment and it says, do not covet. And it stops him in his tracks because everything else had been external. And this one now was getting to Paul's very heart, to what was going on in his heart here. And so the, the, the lie, this first lie, this first deceit from sin is only clean the outside of the cup. In other words, sin is only defined as bad deeds, not bad desires. Sin is just bad actions. It's not bad affections, but we know, um, you know, throughout this book and church history, like no, no, sin actually starts in disordered affections. It starts with your mind's attention and then your heart's loves and desires and inclination and it manifests in actions. Maybe to say it a different way, I used to have a counselor who would who had encouraged me, Jonathan, with the very things that I was tempted towards. He said, Jonathan, what if you proactively prayed and began to ask God to like do something before you got to the temptation, to change desires and to reorder loves? There was a blog a while ago from the Village Church, one of our mother churches that was called a Confess Your Urges. And it said, what if in your accountability groups, you weren't just confessing what you did last month or last week, but what if you were confessing what you're tempted to do next week or next weekend? This idea of unholy thoughts and emotions are not potential sins, the blog says. They are sins in and of themselves. 
Let me get, get real for me for a minute, because in, in this text, what's amazing, it's the first time Paul actually starts using personal pronouns. It would be one thing, a little bit easier if I said to you, hey, my wife and I, we had a fight a month ago, but it was actually last night, you know? And so, um, uh, Caitlin, who's in the room, she's fine. Don't feel too awkward about it. We've already talked about this and we're good now. But um, <laughs> like last night, we got into a fight about the book Gentle and Lowly. How do you do that? Like, how do you get into a fight about the book, about talking about the Savior's character being gentle, lowly, humble, mild, and meek? Well, we did, mainly spurred on by me, I feel like. And so uh, we're in this moment, and, and, and when, in the midst of this argument, uh, Caitlin would say, like, j- just like physically and viscerally, like she was showing some anger, okay? And like, I... I think I probably was, but I didn't feel like I was. I felt like I was doing great. And, and if I'm honest, in my mind, I was thinking, wow, she's showing that. I, I'm putting it together. Like, what, what's wrong here? And then I just was cut to the core about an hour later thinking if the truth is, if you could have diagnosed my heart, it was like raging with frustration, anger, like, like even worse than anything I might do on an outward action. And, and this is the deceit of sin is to say, clean, just clean the outside of the cup. Just put on the mask. Just put yourself together. Host the image. Like make sure that you look the part, but your desires and your affections and what you love and what you want to do, that doesn't matter. But we know it actually does. This is the first deceit of sin. Um, God keeps speaking through Paul in verse eight. Look what he says here. He says, but sin. And so is the law sin? Is the law as bad as sin? Nope. Look at the contrast. No, it's sin, Paul's saying, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And so uh, Paul says that sin came and it seized an opportunity. That that word of seizing an opportunity in the original languages is this idea of like, of, of like a military base of operations. So imagine a military base of operations from which you have all sorts of plans and strategies of war from which you send out troops from. And this is the word picture Paul gives us that sin came and it took the commandment and it leveraged it like a military base of operations to produce all sorts of covetousness through our lives. That it, it leveraged it, it, it uh, used it like a fulcrum. It, it used it like a military base of operations. This is what sin did. And then what did it do? It says it produced in me. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British preacher about a century or so ago. And I mean, he's been super helpful to, the, to understanding this text. And he says it, it literally means here like produced mightily in me. It, it produced powerfully in me. And in our day, we would say things like it slayed me, it killed me, it crushed me, it produced mightily in me all kinds, he says, and, and we don't want to water that down. For those of you who God is wor- working in your heart and like you're seeing the truth of scriptures, this is encouraging because you know the scriptures are speaking to your real reality. All kinds of covetousness, all kinds of cravings, all kinds of envious desire, comparison rock cravings, all kinds of I wants and I should haves and why don't I and all kinds of if I don't get that person or position or paycheck, physique, personality, that place or experience, I've got to have it. And God is saying this through Paul, that sin took the law like a a military base. It leveraged it to produce all sorts, all sorts of lusts and evils in us, all sorts of here's what I want. So the second deception, sin slithers up to a good, holy thing like the law and it leveraged it for good. The deception is that sin takes the hook and it shows the hook, but it hides it in the bait. It hides it in good things. Sin leverages good things like like the good, holy law of God and leverages it to produce 
all the more sinfulness. And then a third deception here. Look at the back half of eight. Paul says this, he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse nine, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So he says, before the law came, sin was dead, I was alive. The law came, I died, sin came alive. What in the world is he talking about? I think he's trying to say that he hadn't understood the true nature of the law and he hadn't understood the truth about sin and the truth about sin in him. He hadn't, he hadn't seen it. In other words, there was a time in Paul's life where he felt full of strength and vigor and vitality. He felt like he was doing great. He had a strut in his step. He would spiritually pat himself on the back. Paul, you're doing so amazing at this Christian walk. There was this vigor and moral power. Philippians 3, 6 comes to mind. It should be on the screen. Paul says this, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. How was I doing with righteousness under the law? How was I doing like living out the law? I was blameless. This is Paul like viewing his life or sort of seeing the true nature of the law. Galatians 1, 14, he says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions my past. And so it's almost like Paul said, I looked to the left and I looked to the right and I couldn't see anybody. I was so far ahead of them. I had to look left and go backwards and look right and go backwards. Like, oh, there they are. Like, here I am keeping the law of God. And, and there they are way back there. This is the rich young ruler in Mark 10. He comes to Jesus in Mark 10 and he says to Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says this to them, you know, the commandments, do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. So in other words, the law is, is this scorecard. And, but then the, the, the true nature of the law came and it, and it arrested and apprehended Paul by the heart of the law, like what was really going on here. Maybe here's an example. Like if, you, if you've been cheering for a team before, maybe they're in the playoffs right now, or, or maybe you've been watching a game with them and someone asks, how's it going? If you say they're still alive, what, what do you mean? You mean like there's still a chance of them winning. Like they're still alive. There's still a chance. There's a vigor, there's a vitality, there's a confidence, like it can still happen. But Paul says, that's not what happened anymore to me when I saw the true nature of the law and saw sin I work in me. He says, I died. I got knocked out. I got knocked out cold. I got Tyson punched. I was out for the count. The things that were my boast, now I have nothing left at all. And this is where, for me, Romans 5 has been so beautiful. When you think about this weak state that Paul is in, seeing the true nature of the law and the true nature of the sin, listen to this. Uh, a couple chapters before, for a while, we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God, he shows his love for us in this and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So law can't deliver, it kills. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones again who said this about the state. He said, the first sign of spiritual life is to feel that you are dead. So this is the third deception. Here's what sin slithers up and says. Sin slithers up and you know what it does? It won't tell the truth about you. It's like a bad friend when you're auditioning for American Idol back in the day, like it doesn't tell the truth about you. Sin looks at you and you're dead and sin says, you're alive. And sin looks at you and you're alive and it says, you're dead. Like sin won't tell the truth about you. This is the deceptive nature of sin. Man, our need is to see our, the true nature of the law, to reveal the true nature of sin at work 
in our hearts and in those around us. Paul, Paul goes on in verses 10 and 11, and he says this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. It's repeating the same idea for sin, seizing an opportunity, same word for sin. Again, not the law, it's sin, Paul is emphasizing, seizing an opportunity, leveraging the law like this military base of operations, leveraging it for its own purposes. Through the commandment, sin deceived me, and through it, it killed me. That's what Paul says. It makes me think of Genesis 3.13 when God comes to Adam and Eve and, and they're saying these things that happen and God's word is, who told you that? Like, how did you hear that? Well, it was from the deception of sin. Isn't that what Eve says? Eve says, the serpent deceived me. In other words, the serpent cheated me and tricked me, hoodwinked me, defrauded, swindled, duped, ensnared, and trapped, beguiled, outwitted, and seduced me. Sin deceived me and it killed me. It always does that, doesn't it? It always does that. Paul's saying it took the very life out of me. Like, like we've, we've heard this, right? We've, we've heard these refrains. Why does Paul keep repeating himself? Here's why Paul keeps repeating himself, because it's really true that if you can see the true nature of sin, that it leads to a true viewing of salvation. If you miss on the true nature of the law, you're gonna miss on the true nature of sin, and you're gonna miss on the true character of our God shown in salvation. So Paul's just summarizing here. It makes me think of 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So do you see how sin takes us in? Like, just, just clean the outside of the cup. Hide the, hide the hook, show the bait, take good things and leverage them for more sinfulness. Won't tell the truth about you. you you're, you're dead. No, you're alive. It takes us in. We see the foolishness of running from God and running to sin. It makes us wanna hate sin. It makes us wanna run from sin if we're seeing this accurately. But not just the true nature of the law, not just the true nature of sin. Last part here in 12 through 14, we see the, we see the problem within. So look with me at verse 12. Paul says this, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it's righteous and it's good. Think of Psalm 19, seven through 11. When I hear that, let me just read it to you. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be satisfied are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them, there is great reward. And so they've seen all this destruction that Paul's talking about that's been produced and leveraged through the law, all this havoc and shrapnel. And so here comes the next question, verse 13. Well, then did that which is good, this holy right law of God, then did that bring death to me? And Paul's emphatic no, again, is certainly not, by no means. And look at the contrast again, same point, it was sin, producing mightily, powerfully producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Here's one paraphrase 
that someone's given of these verses. Sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing, using the good as a cover to tempt me to do that which would finally destroy me by hiding within God's good commandments. Sin did far more mischief than it could have ever have accomplished on its own. It's the malignancy of sin, this cancerous nature of sin. And so I don't know if you um, capture what Paul's saying there, but but he's almost pointing to another deceit of sin that sin loves to point to anything except sin as the problem. Like sin loves to point the finger. Just don't call me sin, you know? Don't call it sin. Sin will point to your coworkers, your kids, your spouse, your roommates, your boss, your friend's boss, your, the law, God, like sin will point to anything but itself. Circumstances just to say, look that way. Like that's the problem. That's the problem. Look away from the true problem. But do you see what Paul's saying is the good gift of the law is to actually so, show the sinfulness of sin. That doesn't seem to make sense to me inherently. Like why, why is that a good gift? Like I feel like I've talked, I've heard about sin enough. Like why is it good for me to hear about the sinfulness of sin? Here's why in Psalm 32, David's confessing his sin and he confesses the sinfulness of his sin there in Psalm 32. And, and this is a good thing because many times, my, I don't know about you, but my confession is not wrought by that. Like my confession, um, sometimes like, like my brokenness is because of the circumstances I'm in. It's so like, that's what I'm bringing. Like I'm just upset about the circumstances. Or if I'm honest, sometimes I'm just beating myself up. Like I've forgotten the grace that is mine in Jesus. But Paul is saying, and David was saying in Psalm 32, that the gift of law is actually showing like the, the inherent sinfulness of sin, that that's the problem. That's the real thing to zero in on. Don't let sin blame, excuse, deflect, defend, and point the finger. Call sin, sin, and see it for what it is. Let the true nature of the law show you the true nature of sin. And and honestly, if you're hearing this, there's another deceit, all these deceits, which um, again, heard Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones point out, and here's the deceit. The deceit is that God isn't good and the law is unreasonable. The one, the one lie over all the other lies, the lie that launches all the other lies is that if the law is sin and death, then what does this say about the lawgiver? Then what is he like? Sin is whispering and slithering up and saying through all of this, God isn't good and the law is unreasonable. This is where James 1, 13 through 15 is helpful. Look with me on the screen. Jesus' half-brother says this, let not one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Now I'm gonna keep reading here. Listen to what he says next. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't, don't be deceived. This is another deception. Why? Because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so the the law is like this mirror to us. It can't heal the brokenness, but it can reveal brokenness to us and in us. And the law, true nature of the law comes in such a beautiful way and it reveals the true nature of sin that it's deceptive. Sin says, clean the outside of the cup. Don't worry about desires and what you love. Just monitor your actions. Sin comes along and, and, and hides the hook and the bait and takes good things like the law of God and leverages them for all the more sin. And sin comes and sin won't tell the truth about you. 
It won't tell the truth about you. It just points the finger to everything else, even namely to God saying that is the problem. And so, so what do we do with all that? Seeing the true nature of the law and then the true nature of sin, what do, what do we do with all that? I think this is one of the main things that this text is saying is that we've got to see the right diagnosis to see the right disease. And only if that is seen rightly, then does it head and, and lead us to the right uh, remedy. And so when I, when I was in high school, I got diagnosed with a autoimmune disease and um, I, I had a kidney transplant because it attacked my kidneys. And they say when that happens, it only comes back in like one or 2% of the cases. So fast forward about 10 years and Caitlin and I are, are dating and it seems like a, potentially the disease has flared up again. They need to do a kidney biopsy on me. Uh, transplanted kidneys are in the front, quick science lesson. That's my kryptonite. If you ever fight me, like right in the front, I'm down. And so um, I don't know why I told you that, but, um, and so we're, we're supposed to go in for this biopsy and Caitlin and I meet the doctor right before we're about to go in for a little consult. And the doctor has um, one eye that he's not looking at me with. It's, it's his closed shut kind of. And, and the other eye, he's not fully looking at me. And I just got to say, uh, my, my grandmother had macular degeneration. My mom has had some eye issues. If you've ever driven with me at night, hello, you know I've got eye issues. And so um, I don't have any problem with people that maybe have some difficulty seeing, but is it fair for me to say, if you're about to do my kidney biopsy, I want you to see what you're doing. And so uh, we affectionately called this Dr. One-Eyed Barry. And I began to go in to, to lay on that little metal, very cold, very isolated, uh, I don't even know what it was, table. And, and I hear Dr. Barry say, well, I haven't done this in a long time. And I'm thinking, well, that's not a good start. And uh, then he looks at his assistant and says, huh, this machine looks like it's changed. Is this the new gadget? You know, and I, I'm thinking, I hope not, you know, and, but she says, yes, Dr. Barry, it is. And don't worry, it's not gonna be too hard. You're just gonna push this button. It'll insert the needle into his kidney, push this one, it'll pull some tissue out. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. He hasn't done this in a while. He doesn't know what's happening. <laughs> Please, let's stop right now. Um, and, and he's like, okay, I think I can do that. And I'm thinking, oh no, help me, someone help me. And I'm, I'm laying on that table and, and you know, you feel, they've numbed you up a little bit. You feel a little pressure. I can, if you ever do this, I can coach you on it. But I, you feel a little pressure, a little pain. And I feel it and I hear him say, I missed. And I'm thinking, I could have told you that, you know? And, and then the second time, I missed. And third time, thankfully, uh, they got it. We really do love Dr. Barry, but um, they got it on the third time. Why, why, why bring you through that? Why make you nauseous going through that? Here's why, because we know this intuitively that without a right diagnosis of the disease, you're not gonna get to a right remedy. If you don't diagnose the disease rightly, you've got no chance of a right remedy. But if you do diagnose the disease rightly and you see a potential right remedy, there's such hope ahead for you, such hope. And so Paul's been saying, here's the diagnostic test, here's the law, here's the disease. It's the true nature the deceptiveness of sin and we've got to do something about it. And so just two things I'm thinking of as we close tonight. Um, one, we've got to hear a right diagnosis. That's the first thing. We've got to be willing to hear a right diagnosis. A couple of weeks later, our doctor got on his stool and scooted across the room towards us and looked at us across the table and said, the disease is back. Now I could have been like, no way, like two per, 1% and Dr. Barry, he messed up and all of this, this, that, you know, like I could, but I, I, ha, I had a choice. Like, am I going to hear the diagnosis again? Because if I can hear it and it's true, there's hope. 
And so first, we just got to hear it. I just wonder how might the Lord have been stirring in your heart through his word tonight? Like, like what ways may you have needed to hear the true diagnosis from the heart of the law showing the true nature of sin? Are, are there ways in your life, if you're honest, that you'd say, man, I'm, I'm just trying to clean the outside of the cup. I've been operating like if my actions are okay, it's okay. Like, how are you doing? Well, I'm okay. I did this, I did this. Like, I've, I've, been, I've been doing this external conformity to just like the rules and laws, but my heart has been in a different place. Or is it, man, it, yeah, I resonate with this idea of like hiding the hook and the bait. I have been leaning into some things that are good things. They're not bad, but I've been making them ultimate things. And sin has been taking these good things and leveraging them for all the more sinfulness. Or is it, you're like, yeah, I'm, God's reminded us tonight, like sin has not been telling the truth to me. And I've been walking around like I was alive when I was dead. And, and thanks, thank you, God, for the hope that if I can see that, there's hope tonight. Or maybe it's just the excuse and deflect. If I'm honest tonight, I've been calling everything else the problem, but the real problem itself, which is sin. And if I'm gonna move to a right remedy, I've got to hear the right diagnosis. And so how might the Spirit of God just be working in you tonight under his word? One, just to hear the diagnosis. And the second is just to accept the, the medicine, to take the medicine, to lean in to the remedy. Just a couple of encouragements on this I wanna, I wanna give us tonight. Um, I think one, for many of us, as we're walking through Romans, like we just long to change. I long to change. I wanna be more like Jesus. And maybe there's a little bit of discouragement on all the wrestle and the fight you feel. And I just wanna go back to that, that quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, when you really begin to feel your deadness, then you're spiritually alive. I wanna encourage you in that tonight. Like if you're no longer feeling the numbness and you're beginning to become aware of some of the brokenness and some of the wrestle and some of the ways that you were dead when you looked at the true nature of the law, that is a gift of God. He is at work in your life. He is doing something that is encouraging. As it's been said before, when there's a battle, only alive people in a battle feel the wounds or the shrapnel. Even though that's so hard, it's only alive people that feel that. Be encouraged of God's work in your life. And then just secondly, we've talked a lot about the deceptive nature of sin tonight. We've talked about how sin is deceptive. And so obviously the enemy behind sin is deceptive. But let me just encourage you and myself and remind us tonight that though he is somewhat deceptive, like his deceptions are not all comprehensive. Like, like, like he ends up uh, being duped himself by, by a greater power and a greater love. And one of my favorite phrases about God is in Isaiah. And it says that God is a God who hides himself. And in other words, um, Martin Luther read this and said this, it's so beautiful. He said, what does that mean? He said, at the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ hid his glory in shame. At the cross, Jesus Christ hid his victory in defeat. At the cross, Jesus Christ hid his strength and weakness. We have a God who hides himself. What the enemy means for evil, our God comes along and takes it and uses it for good because he's stronger. He's more glorious and powerful. And then just the last thing on that hope is in verse 10, we didn't talk about this a lot, but Paul used this phrase in verse 10 where he said, the very commandment promised life to me. So if you've been tracking with Romans, you might've thought, how could the commandment promise life? We said, again, Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You can't be saved by the law. You can't be changed by the law. How could it promise life to me? Well, here's how it could promise life. It could only promise life if you could actually keep the law. And here's the gift Here's the gift of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I feel like we just keep trying to like slip out of Romans to Romans 8, so I'll do it too. The gift is that one was coming. There was one that was coming. Romans 8, 3, what the law couldn't do, weak in the flesh, God did in his son. There was one coming who would fulfill the law perfectly 
in our place for our sins in great cost to himself, in great affection coming for us and do what we couldn't do so that what the law couldn't do weak in the flesh, God would do in his son. And so it just becomes the, 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 the most simplest part of taking the medicine leading to the remedy is just to look to Jesus and trust and put our faith in him once again. The true nature of the law, um, just to show the true nature of sin. And if we see it, we'll see the true nature of, our, of salvation and the beauty of the hope and the greatness that we have um, in our God. Let me just pray for us and we'll get to take the Lord's Supper tonight and sing together and be sent together as a family. Father, we love you. We just confess um, our, our need for you tonight. And we, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that if, like Paul says, it's your law is good and holy and right, that's just speaking things about you. You, God, are good and holy and right. We just confess that together. And I just pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would just be revealing in our hearts ways that we might have fallen, been duped by the deceptiveness of sin. But God, would you not leave us there? Would you give us great hope in you, great hope of the good news of the gospel and what you did when we could not do it? Would you give us great hope? You, a God that can reverse and turn stories. Would we hear... Um, the diagnosis of your word, but will we take the medicine, we lean into the remedy. We love you and just pray this for Jesus' sake, amen.